How do you stop yourself from flushing the toilet and watching all the time? This episode of iFreeze is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to ifreakshow.com slash codeschool. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 65 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Pete Hodgson. Good morning from Berkeley. Alondo Brewington. Hello from North Carolina. James Uber. If I've learned one thing in this life, never play cards with a man named Doc. <laughs> I so was expecting never get involved in a land war in Asia, but that works. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and uh, this week we have a special guest, and that's Stuart Gledow. Uh, that's right, yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. I'm Stu. I'm an iOS developer and an API developer. I'm currently calling in at 2 a.m. from Melbourne, Australia. That's like the future, right? Yeah. He's, yeah, he's... I think it's it's Wednesday here. Yeah, he's talking wow. from tomorrow. We really appreciate Sorry. you uh, getting up early or staying up late or whatever you did, not sleeping. <laughs> That's fine. You, usually when I'm up at this time, I'm up watching Australia beat England at the cricket or something like that. Oh, so. oh there you go. Sorry, Pete. <laughs> I hardly understand how it works anyway. So Cricket, isn't that an insect? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, similar. It's a phone company. Anyway, so... You came on today to talk about APIs and mobile backends, I think was one of them, backends as a service. I'm a little curious as we get started, have you used several of the backend as a service stuff? So I haven't done much with backends as a service. Okay. Um, so it, it dealt a lot with mobile backends. I, I like to think of myself as an iOS developer, but uh, most of the apps that you work on consume a bunch of different backend services. So I end up spending a lot of time helping design the APIs and the the interactions between the systems that the apps talk to. I'm not opposed to the backends as a service, but most of the ones that I've worked on have ended up being custom-built APIs, usually deployed on similar, on Heroku and AWS and things like that, but not at the really high level uh, where you get the whole backend integrated for you. Very nice. So, you know, we talked about HTTP APIs, I think it was like three months ago, and uh, we kind of gave some general guidelines. And I know you said you listened to the episode, so I'm curious, do you have a good jumping-off point for us from where we left off? Yeah, I think just in case some people didn't listen to that episode, you know, we covered the basics of, of REST and REST APIs and going a little bit into hypermedia. And I think the interesting part of, of REST APIs and where you really get good decoupling between the the mobile front ends and your back-end APIs is when you start using hypermedia and putting links into your JSON really heavily and, and trying to force that logic into the back-end system. So maybe it's worth kind of extending on, on that previous episode, uh, talking about hypermedia and some of the ways that we're actually approaching that and implementing it into our systems. Yeah, that would be awesome. Jude, do you want to talk a little bit about what your day job is, just to give people some context as uh, where you're building these APIs or consuming these APIs? Sure, yeah, that's probably a good place to start. So I work for a company called REA, which is Real Estate Australia. So they make a website called realestate.com.au, which from the outside doesn't seem 
that big, but on the inside, it's a quite a big organisation. There's a, I think there's over over 200 people in the IT section, probably about 800 people in the company globally now. So the the primary business is putting real estate listings for for sale or for rent and share houses on realestate.com.au. We have a iPhone and Android app and a, the websites as well. So we built the original iOS app probably back in 2010 now and built a custom API for that. And obviously over the last four years, that's kind of evolved. The APIs have evolved and the apps have evolved as well. Um, and there's now apps for commercial properties and there's apps for an Italian side of our business and, and some other places in the world. So as they've evolved, we certainly made plenty of mistakes in designing the initial API and how we chose to consume that. And so part of this is driven out of the lessons that were found and where we found that there was coupling where there probably shouldn't have been and where we found that we baked a bunch of logic into the iOS apps, which probably could have been driven from the API and made the apps a little bit simpler as well. So that's kind of the context for, for these discussions. And probably about a year ago, we started moving to a completely a new API or a new set of APIs to drive the data for these real estate applications. And so at, at that time, it was a good time to reflect and look at, you know, how could we have done the kind of REST hypermedia better and made the apps a little bit simpler and easier to maintain over time. Are these APIs just consumed by an iOS app or I'm guessing there's an Android app or something like that as well? Yeah, there are a number of applications consuming them. So ne- nearly all of the APIs now have multiple consumers. So the iOS app is probably the, the primary driver of the hypermedia and, and the linking side, purely because once we release an iOS app, if it has if it's coupled to specific details and structures on the back-end systems, it's very hard to evolve that over time because we can't force iOS users to update. Even with automatic updates with iOS 7, there's still a really long tail of people that take a long time to update to the latest version. So making mistakes in how you design your API it seems to be a lot more costly in that environment. For the, the mobile web, we're able to take a few more shortcuts because when we screw up, we can actually, if we need to, we can deploy the website and the API together and everyone gets the new version. So your website is also a consumer of the API? Yeah, over time. So the parts of the website are generated from a giant legacy Java application which is not consuming an API that's kind of built over the database with most of the application logic and most of the business rules all baked into a bunch of JSPs. We're slowly moving away from that. We've just found that, that, and that's an interesting kind of architectural point that plays in nicely with the APIs is as we move from this one giant Java system, it's very hard to deploy. Um, we've actually put a huge amount of effort into it to get it down from you know quarterly deploys to every month to now every week. But it's still a giant system that's very hard to understand and very hard to work on and maintain. So as we develop new functionality, we're actually splitting out smaller microservices, providing the APIs for those systems and just static web front ends. So it mostly served out of S3 buckets. They're, they're pretty simple. And so over time, the, the live system is slowly getting chipped away at. And so we're getting all these new APIs springing up that are then consumed by the websites and can also be used by iOS applications. Can That's you talk interesting. A more about microservices, like what does that mean? You hear the word thrown around quite a bit lately, but what are we actually talking about? So microservices is, is mostly a buzzword, I, I think. So I remember a few years ago hearing a lot of talk about it from a guy called Fred George talking at you know, GoTo and QCon conferences like that, and they were talking about hundreds of services, and they were tiny, and they were short-lived, and they'd come and go, and they were just all buzzing around, and, and it sounded amazing. But I have no idea how that would actually work in, in practice. I can't get my head around how hundreds of services would kind of coexist. So when I talk about microservices, I'm really talking about small, manageable services built around a specific sets of functionality. So we've probably currently got about, instead of having this one giant backend, we've maybe got 
half a dozen new services, at least in the part of the business that I work in. I can see that turning into a, a dozen services over the next year. I can't see it turning into a hundred. So just for a couple of examples, so we have some of the smaller ones are probably about kind of autocomplete services. So when you start typing in an address, getting back a bunch of suggestions from that for users, that's definitely a very small one. We have ones that deal with user authentication and, and bookmarks and management and things like that. And we have other ones that deal with actually serving up their real estate listings to, to render in the application. And I think over time, they'll probably get a little bit smaller and a little bit more focused. But when we say micro, they're, they're not really micro. They're, they're anywhere from a few hundred lines of code to a few thousand lines of code, but they don't end up being these, these giant monoliths anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're splitting up, you said, your autocomplete from, say, like billing. You know, you can update your autocomplete without having to go through the whole rigmarole of deploying the whole thing that your app does. That sounds yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and if, if you end up breaking up the systems in the right way, it becomes really easy to work on those systems and deploy them. And many of these systems are deployed, you know, every day. Some of them are deployed every time there's a commit. It just automatically goes through a pipeline of, of tests and gets deployed to production straight away. Um, and they become much easier to work on. But you do force some of the complexity into that integration side of things. So while working on your service is really easy, you now have to be aware of how your service integrates with other services in, in production and things like that. So you do, it is a little bit more complex to think of the system as a whole as being this number of moving parts now instead of just one thing. But I think if you break up your services right and you're mostly just working in one place at a time, it certainly makes life a lot easier. How do you handle versioning in a scenario like that so that if you do make a change and deploy one microservice and another service is depending on it or an app is depending on it, making sure that it doesn't break something else? We try and avoid formal versioning wherever possible. So ideally, we make changes backwards compatible. And if the consumers are there, we try and make forwards compatible changes first and try and avoid a formal versioning at all times. We're using consumer-driven contracts for that a little bit. So that, that was mentioned briefly in, in the episode on HTTP APIs, I believe. But instead of just building APIs from scratch, we're trying to only build features into APIs that are actually being used by, by front-end applications. And to do that, we kind of use these contract tests from the apps where if you're working on the app, you can say, you know, I'm using this API and this is what I expect from it. I expect to do, say, do this request and get back these kinds of responses with this data structure, these links present, and, and things like that, and use those contract tests to actually drive out the APIs. So as if you do need to make breaking changes, you'd, you'd start on the front end and make those changes and that would introduce a new contract and then slowly roll that out. For the web, that's not too bad because you can deploy the front end and the back end together if, if needed. For iOS, we generally just make things backwards compatible. So there are APIs out there that are serving multiple data formats to satisfy old and new clients. So whether that's through putting a version in the in the URL or having content negotiation, it does vary between different services. There's even some cases where we've just left an old API running in production and just forked it and started deploying a new version of it that new applications talk to and just leaving the old one there with the old format as well. So there's, there's a number of approaches going on to do that. That actually makes me think of an interesting wrinkle with... So normally consumer-driven contracts, you just kind of say, you know, this is everything that's about to be deployed to production tests that it can talk to everything that's already in production kind of thing. But with a deployed or not a deployed, I guess, an installed kind of base of mobile apps, it's actually multiple different versions of the software that are, that are kind of in production, as it were. So do you do anything to kind of like keep track of like the old contracts? Like, you know, this is, you know, the app from 
two months ago expected these APIs to work this way and the app from four months ago expected the APIs to work in this way. Is there anything formal like that or is it a bit more kind of ad hoc? At the moment, it's a little bit more ad hoc. We're still kind of bedding down our approach to consumer-driven contracts. So there's a little open source library that we've written called Pact, P-A-C-T, which should be on the realestate.com.au GitHub account, which is an approach for doing consumer-driven contracts. So that's a little Ruby tool for doing it. There's another one called Pact JVM, which is actually on a separate GitHub account for a company called DSDIUS for doing similar pack testing with JVM languages. We haven't written anything like that for iOS yet. Uh, we've started, but not to a point where we're using it as part of our, our usual flow. So that would be one way of keeping track of which versions we're requiring, kind of which data formats. So we haven't done that yet. With our old API that we deprecated probably about 10 months ago now, but is still running in production for old versions of the app, we did have that kind of which versions of the app that was using content types in the API to do the negotiation and versioning. And, and that had a bunch of, I can't remember if that Cucumber or Aspect Test, but it was a Ruby-based API. And so it was all just done on the server. It wasn't actually consumer-driven, but there were tests over that, that kind of end-to-end tests, checking that the old versions were still supported by the, the new version of the API. So switching tacks a little bit, there was something you said earlier that was interesting to me. You mentioned like the website is mainly deployed kind of as static components on S3. Does that mean when you're saying that the website is consuming these APIs, do you mean like a JavaScript kind of app running in the browser is consuming them, or is there something in serverland that's consuming the APIs and kind of turning them into HTML? It's a little bit of both. Okay. But for the newer sites that we're working on, they're mostly kind of static JavaScript-heavy front ends built over the API, so there's very little initial server-side rendering. Even for those sites, we often have some server-side rendering capability, say for when, when people uh, deep link into a, a certain page of the application rather than you know going through a flow from coming from the home page and doing a search and things like that. If they just hit a link in an email or, or in a tweet or something like that. But it, it does depend on the system. But certainly for the new ones, it's a lot of client-side rendering or at least rendering, maybe rendering partials on the server and, and stitching them together on the front end. Yes, there's kind of SEO implications as well to doing it all on the... That's that's always what people say. That's the boogeyman that people bring up when they talk about Angular or Ember or those kind of client-side frameworks is all your SEO goes out the window. But I don't know if that's actually true. I think it's getting better from what I hear. Yeah. Google have figured out how to run JavaScript. Well, they kind of own slash sponsor slash run slash whatever you want to call it, AngularJS. So I'm assuming that they're adding JavaScript capabilities to their crawlers. Yeah, that's a topic for a different show. Yeah. Yeah, I have to confess to being a little bit ignorant of, of the SEO side of things uh, for this. I, I've overheard many discussions about it as we've moved into this JavaScript-heavy world, and I think it's it's certainly a little bit more tricky, but it sounds like uh, some of those problems are solvable these days. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I have wondered about a little bit, and I'm getting into this myself with devchat.tv, which will probably be released before this uh, show actually airs. But I've set up kind of a different service-oriented architecture with different services that provide information about different aspects. So I've got, you know, an API system that serves up shows, episodes, and related information. And then I've got another system that manages all the sponsorships. And so once I get that finished, incidentally, I'm using AngularJS on the front end of devchat.tv, I want to do an iOS app. And I recognize that some of the endpoints that I'm creating are probably 
ideal for the web app, but not necessarily ideal for an iPhone app, depending on how I design it and what information I'm showing. You know, how do you get that right without duplicating too much stuff across your API? So certainly we've hit some of those problems, for sure. So we've, we've hit areas where we wanted the data to come in a certain format from the API for the web client because it made it really easy to bind into mustache templates. That was one of the reasons we try and build these really high-level APIs that there's very little logic on the client and, and we can kind of bind things into views quite easily. But we had different requirements from the iOS application that wanted to make it really easy to render on the client. It actually had a different structure, a slightly different structure. And there's certainly cases where we have APIs that are actually just serving up both formats in parallel and hoping gzip takes care of some of the, the packet bloat for us. I think going forward, I've been talking to a few people about building... There's a guy called Phil Calcedo at SoundCloud that I saw he gave some talks about... He calls them backends for frontends or BFFs. And <laughs> instead of having a, a single API that multiple frontends talk to, actually having a single high-level API for each frontend. You might have one for iOS, one for mobile web, maybe one for Android, depending on how much the experiences vary on the front end and how much mm -hmm. the requirements change. If you can get away with using one, that's great. But I found a number of cases where they start to diverge. And in, in this microservices world, you end up with you know lots of small, low-level services that are dealing with certain types of data on the back end. And you don't want to end up with the, say, the mobile apps being the aggregation point for all of these services. Mm -hmm. You don't want that kind of coupling. So you end up it's nice having this one kind of high-level API that stitches all that together and provides a view that's very specific to the front end. I've heard them called experience-based APIs before, so they, they are, they're not just serving up kind of the raw data, they're serving it up the data in a format that really is driven by the experience of the front-end applications. And I think when you go down that route, it ends up making sense to have separate APIs for different front-end applications, unless the experience is exactly the same, and I haven't seen many places where, where that's the case. Usually the apps and, and the web seem to evolve in parallel, but not always in the same way. I think there's a lot of Conway's law that plays into this, right, is normally the people building, unless you're, you're really, really doing kind of the vertical teams thing that I think I talked about in the previous episode of having, like, teams oriented around product features, then almost certainly the, the folks building the website aren't the same people building the mobile app, so the experience is going to diverge kind of naturally that way, right? Yeah, that's right. We've been experimenting with those organizational structures over, over the last year, and, and I've certainly been a big proponent of trying to make these vertical slice teams. So we've tried to set up around kind of sets of functionality, maybe in the Spotify model, although I've never, never talked to the guys from Spotify to see if we're doing it the same way as them or not. Trying to have a little team where you might have... You still have some specialists, so you might have a couple of iOS developers, some, some JavaScript guys, and some people on the APIs, and maybe some database people all together being able to develop features end-to-end. -end. Uh, in reality, we still end up specializing a little bit, so I spend most of my time on iOS apps and a bit on the APIs, and there'll be other people that specialize in other areas. And so you certainly do get a bit of Conway's Law, but at least all sitting together and talking to each other regularly, we start, and, and we even... From an API perspective, we often draw up on the wall what the kind of request flows are between iOS and, and the JavaScript app and comparing them and constantly talking about that. So we, we get some consistency, but they do certainly evolve independently. Yeah, and I think, I like, I guess I said Conway's law, but I don't think it necessarily needs to be a negative thing, right? Like you can embrace the fact it's going to happen and use it to your advantage and just say, there's a team building the iOS app, there's a team building the web app, for example. They both need 
some kind of control over the back end. So give each of them a BFF, I guess. <laughs> I really like that term. Yeah, I think that makes a big difference. So maybe in terms of having those polyskilled teams, it's unlikely that the person that's really great at doing the latest iOS view animations is also going to be the person doing performance tuning on, on your database or setting up automated build pipelines to EC2. Sometimes they are the same people. They, if you know any of those people, we, we'd love to talk to them. They're hard to find. But at least having some overlap so the people working on whatever front end it is have the ability to work on the immediate back end that they talk to. So this high-level API. So if you're, you should be able to work on the iOS app and work on the consumer-driven contracts and the API that immediately that that talks to. Once that fans out into, say, half a dozen lower-level services, maybe that starts to be different teams. So you kind of get at least getting some overlap in that discussion and hopefully getting a bit more consistency and a bit more an API that's fit for purpose and as easy to use as possible uh, out of doing that. In this model, do you always... I mean, it's, it sounds like the, your iOS app is never talking directly to these back-end small services. It's always going through kind of, if nothing else, uh, some kind of proxy, or does, does it sometimes just talk directly to, to the back-end services? Uh, it sometimes just talks directly. One of the things we're, um, we've been trying to feel our way through is because our APIs just use uh, links to expose sets of functionality and, and for the app to navigate, uh, you don't always know from the app perspective which service you're actually talking to on the back end. So we have a single entry point. Ideally, all the links are off existing data. So you, you, maybe you do a search and you get back some listings and you can get the details of them and send an inquiry to a real estate agent and things like that. It's all links off that data. But there are a handful of standalone entry points uh, to the system that aren't linked off any other data. So we, we have this single endpoint that we hit as soon as the application starts up. And that's kind of the app just asking, you know, hey, what's possible? What can I do? What functionality is available? It hits this endpoint and then maybe there's something in there for doing searches and there's something in there for signing into your user account and a few other things. Then we just keep following links from there. And even in that initial endpoint, they're not all on the same service. So our some of the authentication and bookmarks services are on a different endpoint to where we get suburb suggestions, uh, kind of address autocomplete and things like that. So we, we do end up fanning out into other services. If if it turns out that those services aren't fit for purpose, then we'll certainly put something in between to make something that is in the format we want and high level for what we need in the UI. But as a default, if there's an existing service that provides us what we want, assuming we can get a contract in place to verify that, hey, you know, this version of the app is expecting this data to exist. Because it, we have a lot of teams working on these different systems and it is hard to keep track of which systems are consuming which APIs so that getting those contracts in place is really essential so that once the apps are in production, people don't forget about them and, and change them over time and, and break you know the app from three months ago, which someone is still using, I'm sure. So that's actually a really good example of where hypermedia can help you, right, is you can start off by just pointing directly to a service and then evolve that over time. Even in the future, you realize, oh, wait, we actually want to I don't know, maybe there's a bunch of extra information being sent back that we don't actually care about. So we want to kind of go through some mobile-specific API first. You can just change the link, and you don't have to deploy any new code to the client. Someone using an old version of the app gets that improvement kind of as a freebie, right? Yeah, so I'm trying to think of a good example of where we did this uh, recently. So we had a, an address autocomplete service that came back and, and gave us verified addresses with a geolocation with a latitude and longitude for the property 
And it turned out the data source that we were using for the geocodes were terrible. I looked up a bunch of the places that I had lived in in my life and pins on the map were all in the wrong place. So we ended up integrating another microservice in there that would actually kind of wrap those two and, and provide the same address data but would actually get the latitude and longitude from another data source and, and, and merge those together and provide it to the, the clients. And that kind of all just works seamlessly in and, and the fact that we're now talking to our new geocoding service rather than the raw address service is, is kind of secondary and unknown to the client. It just ends up following a link from the initial sets of data. So that was a nice example of using that and, and not breaking clients and getting that functionality for free and even talking to a different service than we were before. So you mentioned one thing a little bit before about when you're developing these hypermedia APIs, you know, the idea is that you can just follow links. So version in your app should be seamless. You can change the functionality. You mentioned one thing that I thought was kind of cool to point out that you kind of have one service where you kind of phone home to get your various endpoints, your starting points. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So that kind of just grew out of necessity that we'd love to have just a single URL that's baked into the app. Uh, and that's the only place that it yeah, phones home to get there and then it follows links from there. And that's, that's certainly one of, one of the principles that Roy Fielding talks about with REST. Just saying that the only knowledge you should have about the API is, he calls it a bookmark, but like a single URL, that's your entry point. And then from there, it's all about content types and hypermedia and knowing, you know, being part of that content discussion with the API and following the links from there. In reality, we've kind of got two sets of these entry points. So there's one of them, which is you start up the app, you know, anytime it always finds home, hits this endpoint, which is basically a set of links that comes back in, in the HAL JSON format. And then from there, it, it follows the links. Now, that can be really heavily cached. I think we probably cache it for up to a day on the client. So even though it's phoning home each time you start it up, most of the time it's just grabbing it off the disk. But there's also a set of links that comes back when you sign in. And so they're basically the links that, that require you to be authenticated. So the, the initial links you get when you phone home um, are just part of a, I guess, a public API. You don't need to sign into the application to use those links. Uh, and then when you sign in, you get another set of links, which will be more about how to retrieve your user details or, or sync your bookmarks and view your profile and things like that, which require authentication. And, and so we know for those those links that we actually have to deal with, you know, whether whether it's tokens or cookies or, or something like that to deal with authentication. Now, do you use something like OAuth to do your authentication? We don't. So we have an authentication endpoint. Okay. And depending on, we, we have different security models for different types of data. So certainly some data to do with our users or maybe where they live is much more sensitive than other activity on the site. So we have, you know, we just use tokens for some things and then we we use kind of expiring cookies and, and things like that and, and reissue of those cookies on a, on a very regular basis for, for other endpoints. The security model has been partly driven by, we're trying to make the the web a bit more secure. So it kind of uses cookies fairly heavily, uh, even from the iOS perspective, which is not something I'd done before working on this system, but it actually seems to be working fairly well. I hadn't used cookies as an authentication mechanism from iOS before, but it, it seems to magically work at, at this stage. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be problems. The other question I have is, it sounds like you've broken up the back end into several different applications or services. Do you have them all under like one api.realestate.com.au or do you, you know, is it like users.realestate.com and houses.realestate.com and streets.realestate.com? You know, do you split up the API space over the services or do you kind of unify it so it all looks like it's the same service? They're mostly unified. In, in our test environments, they're often namespaced. So we'll have address.realestate.com.au and whether it's bookmarks or, or listings 
www.realestate.com.au. In production, it's all fronted by Akamai. And so from the very front-end perspective, it all looks like it's on a unified domain. Um, and because of the way we, we use cookies, we actually require it to be on the same domain in certain cases to make sure that the cookies get passed through in the right way. So that's all fronted by Akamai, and, and Akamai does some of that split to the different services on the back end. So it, we'd love to get it to the point where it's actually it's the same in every environment. It works in the same way. At, at the moment, it's a little bit different in production to some of the test environments, just in the way that Akamai does the unification under a single domain for us and then and splits it up on the way through. Okay, so from the client standpoint, it all looks like it's one endpoint, even though it might be split up to different services. That's right. And one of the decisions we made as we've started moving down this hypermedia road is that all, all links that are provided are absolute fully qualified links. And initially, we, we wrote some links where they were just kind of server relative. They'd just be slash users slash whatever. And that gets kind of confusing on the front end when you're in the microservices world. There's lots of backends that you're talking to and you're not actually sure which one's which anymore. So. If one service provides a link that may be back to itself, but maybe onto another service, it just makes life a lot easier if you just have the convention that all links are absolute. So we don't do any kind of appending and stitching together of the URLs on the front end. So that makes life a little bit easier in that all we know about from a URL perspective is this initial entry point. And from there, we actually don't know if they're on the same domain or not anymore. And in some cases, we've only found out that they're on a different domain when we've Fortunately, when we've been testing before we've released to find out that if, if things aren't on the same domain, then maybe some of the security policies on the cookies don't work properly. So we've had to unify some of them. Right. That was one of the issues I ran into trying to develop a kind of hypermedia system. It's like, do we use relative links? Do we use dynamic links? And I think we, I asked around it. We came up with doing like absolute links because it's really not that much extra text. One question I had is a lot of the iOS libraries that do kind of networking, if you're using we used RESTKit, but AF Networking does something similar. They all kind of require a base URL. So I know if we did a request for RESTKit and it didn't have the same base URL, it just got ignored. So it never came back, so we had to figure out a different way to do that. Did you run into any issues like that? Uh, yeah, yeah we, we certainly ran into that same issue. So AF Networking, when you make the AF Network client, or I can't remember actually what it's called, but AF Networking 2, but yeah, you, you feed in a base URL and it uses that. It certainly seems to be built on on that. Rails model, I guess, where you have a, a single entry point and then you have lots of kind of restful routes on top of that based on conventions and, and paths. It, it's not really built for hypermedia model. So we do feed in a base URL, but because every link is, is absolute, it never gets used. So if you look at the internals, the way it stitches together the, the NS URL, I think when you create an NS URL relative to a base URL, if it's absolute, it just ignores the base URL. So. Yeah, we do feed in a base URL, but it's actually meaningless. And in theory, it never gets used and until someone deploys one of these microservices with a relative path. Then I'm sure something will break. Okay, very cool. So you mentioned caching briefly, except you said caching because you're Australian. <laughs> <laughs> um, we need a pronunciation guide for all the... You know. Caching is my favorite thing that Australians say. I don't know. Um, I've met some Americans that say caching, and now I know no who way. they're talking to. Yeah, now I know who they're talking to. They're talking to Australians. That's, Were that's they from good. a particular part of the US? Like that seems that's like the canonical Australian thing for me. Is, ca- is the caching I have of data? No idea. I keep on catching myself on whether I'm going to say route or route. Yeah, I'm not actually sure what people say in other parts of the world, but route has different connotations in Australia. Um, so, <laughs> so we would say route for that. <laughs> yeah, we say route in 
in the US too. Okay, I'll, I'll stick with that. Debatable, I think. Yes, you know, it is. There's like there's like Route 66. Yes. And there's a rural route. So really? What do you do? Yep. Wow. Maybe it's just because I spent all my time in California. I think that everyone in America is the same, but they're so different. It's yeah, it probably less. It's a South thing. Yeah. That's okay. Less- Everybody outside the U.S. thinks that the rest of the U.S. is real close to California. So. <laughs> My American, Sorry, my British friends think I live in LA for some reason. I don't know why. Probably less uh, confusing to say route in the US. Okay. <laughs> Even though I said route for a long time. <laughs> Alright, so that settles that. <laughs> I'm putting my foot down. <laughs> you have a problem with it? Talk to me. We'll get a lot of angry uh, hate mail from the listeners now. So anyway, caching, caching. Is that something you've had to work on a lot? Because, you know, one of the things that maybe people think about when they think about all these small services is is super chatty APIs and all that kind of stuff. So is have you had to do a lot of work to get caching to work from a performance standpoint? Or how, talk about caching in general, actually, because I don't think we, we talked about that much in the other episode. Okay, so we don't do anything really out of the ordinary for caching. So uh, I've gone straight back to caching. So caching. <laughs> That's fine. So we try and do client-side caching when we can. So if data we know doesn't change very often. We'll certainly set the headers on that to say we don't even bother going back to the server if it's within you know 60 seconds for some things or maybe it's a, a day for other things. If, if things really don't change very often, then we'll set really long cache expiry times on them and, and let them sit in the local cache on the, the iOS app. And then to try and relieve load on the back-end servers, we'll, we'll do some kind of e-tag caching and just send not modified responses if, if the data hasn't changed just to relieve the load on the on the network as well and the amount of download that the iOS app has to do. And when, when you say, sorry, I think this is like one of the things that's obvious if you've been doing it for a while, but maybe isn't obvious for people that haven't done it before. When you say we kind of just set the headers or decide the kind of the caching policy, you mean with HTTP headers that are driven or defined by the server, right? You, you don't have anything baked into the app that says, oh, for this URL, cache it this way, and for that URL, cache it another way. Yeah, no, we're just using stock standard HTTP headers for all of that and relying on you know, AF networking and the NS URL cache under the hood to do its job. Um, and, and it seems to do a pretty good job of that and following, you know, detecting if not modified and fetching it out of the cache and things like that. So if your device is, you know, running out of disk space, it will, you know, it'll clear those caches and, and blow them away. But, but in general, there's nothing baked into the app to make that happen. And in some cases, it's configured in, in the actual microservices. Ideally, I think the person that's producing the data has the best knowledge about how stale something can be and still be relevant. But in some cases, we've configured our caching through uh, Akamai. And I'd like it all to be controlled by the individual services. I think that's easier to to reason about. But in some cases, it's gone through and just done a a wide pass and set up a a bunch of caching for, for certain resources in Akamai and letting it do its job as well. The one thing we haven't that I'd like to play around with on that side but, but haven't at this stage is if, so say we cache things really heavily and then we decide, no, the, the cache is too stale, we go back to the server and try and get the hit the endpoint again and get the fresh data. If that request fails, I'd love to just then say, well, you know what, even though the thing that's stored on the disk is a little bit stale, you can have that anyway because serving up stale data is better than serving no data. And I, I haven't looked at that yet about making that work in a way which which doesn't require much overhead. I don't know if there's some little knobs you can tweak that just make that work or whether it's something you have to build into your code that's actually consuming the URLs. But that's something I'd really like to do and just because on mobile networks, certainly in Australia, and certainly if you're not near one of the, you know, three major cities that we have, the mobile networks do get 
pretty flaky. So you, you do get network dropouts all the time. And if you have cache data, well, I'd, I'd much rather serve that than show a big error page saying, sorry, you know, everything fell over. But I haven't played around with that in, in much detail yet. I wonder if you can even get down that low level, like whether that's underneath kind of NSURL connection somewhere that where you're not allowed to go or whether you'd have to kind of replace, you know, do replace a bunch of the stuff that you get for free at the moment. Yeah, it may mean that you have to re-implement your entire approach to client-side caching, which is not something I'd, I'd like to do. It it may be that there's just a few things that you can tweak to detect when you get a, just detect if a resource is in the cache, even if you get an error, but I haven't tried to do it uh, at yeah. this stage. I thought the same thing, because I, I definitely always kind of preach the gospel of, like, just use HTTP for caching headers, and, you know, the front-end stack, the client-side stack will do all of the caching for you, and it will just magically work, and that's totally true. But it does mean if you want to do something which isn't totally legit from an HTTP point of view, but is helpful for the users, then you might hit a point where you're kind of in a glass ceiling of, like, you know, sorry, you're going to have to rebuild everything from scratch yourself. Yeah, that's right. And one thing on the caching point of view, when we talk about these kind of backends for front ends, that certainly makes life a lot easier. So one thing we've noticed is, as we've started to draw up on the wall what the all the network calls are that um, maybe a, for a certain piece of functionality, you suddenly find out that for a certain page that you go to that it's doing five or six requests every time. And even if they're cached, if you don't get that quite right, on a mobile network, if you fire off five requests all the time just to view one page, you know one of them is going to fail and you have to deal with a graceful degradation and things like that. So these backends for front ends will try and make the service a little bit more chunky rather than chatty. So you'll actually just go and ideally just do one request and maybe that will fan out and do the five smaller requests and bring back a single payload and it becomes more of a unit. You either get all the data or you get none of it. Then those can be a little bit more heavily caged as well to make life a little bit easier on the front end. I have a very limited understanding of and, and use of hypermedia, but I was just curious, when we talk about this this caching, are we... Are there scenarios where you persist in any information to disk or at all, or is it simply uh, just relying on the cache and then making API calls? Yeah, I, I kind of go back and forth on this. I, I love the idea of really simple front-end applications and, and having as little code in the actual native applications as possible because they're the most expensive to maintain and leaving them to do what they're good at, which is rendering the, the user experience and doing the view animations and things like that. I'd love it if it was all just based on HTTP caching and you, and you just did requests all the time. In reality, it does make a big difference to some parts if you have a, a local cache. So our application at the moment uses core data and for a local cache. So if you're just coming back from, if you're coming back to a screen that you've already been at, it will render it straight out of core data. It may then trigger a, a refresh in the background that'll actually go and hit the network and refresh the data that way as well. But in general, most of the data that you're looking at on any one screen has at some stage being retrieved from the network, but is, is now being served up out of core data. Except we don't do any images for that. We just uh, let the HTTP cache do its thing for, for images. So we, we only just store the actual URLs to images in core data, and the rest of them are, are fetched remotely. And the, the images have huge cache expiry times on them. If, if, if an image changes, we just change the URL rather than expiring the cache or anything like that. Yeah, so we do use core data really heavily for that. And the reason I go back and forth on it is, is because it does make life a lot more complicated on the client when every time you upgrade, you're suddenly dealing with migrations and what's the existing data state and, and how do you convert one data format to another or how do you deal with you know multi-threading in core data without crashing stuff all the time. And I know it's possible to do that. It's just really easy to slip up if you're not careful and it does make life a lot more complicated than just doing raw HTTP requests and, and dealing with things in memory in that way. 
So I kind of go back and forth, but at the moment we're using Core Data pretty heavily on the client side for that. So what does the data look like that you're actually saving to Core Data? So we don't have a really in-depth data model. Like we don't have a crazy Core Data model file with, with lots of entities and relationships and things like that. Uh, we have a handful, but we generally have we generally have a much flatter hierarchy of objects on the client side than I do on the server. So often the data that the server's giving back in the JSON is, is somewhat tied to database tables as much as we'd like it not to be. That often ends up being the case. And on the client, I might only care about, there might be an entire structure for, for an address of a property, but all I care about in this particular place is the street. So maybe I just have a, have a string for the street and I don't actually have an address object and things like that. So, so we have a couple of high-level entities and then just a bunch of properties. Because most of our application is about um, rendering and viewing um, real estate information, a lot of the data that comes back in the JSON is strings. Even for things that like a, a price for a property and things like that, they often come back pre-formatted as strings that we just display on, on the screen because we don't do a lot of client-side processing of the data, so we don't need the raw information very much. We actually we went down the path of some of our core data objects have I can't remember what the name for it is, but we basically you have sub-objects which are automatically archived into core data just using NS Archiver and NS Coding. We thought that would be an easy win, and I think over time that's been a, a real pain. I think if, you, if you're going to go down the core data approach, you know, either use the built-in types or actually create entities and relationships. I think putting the automatic archiving of objects, uh, of some sub-objects, say an address, would be archived inside a property. That was probably a mistake. That's been a little bit of a, of a pain to maintain over time. I think we'll move away from that and make our client-side model a little bit richer in core data. So you're persisting more of the like a property, the kind of the result of it, not necessarily what was received from kind of the HTTP request. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's right. So we so we'll do a search, for example, and we'll get back an array of results with pagination links to get the next page of results or, or to a self-link to refresh the results. And we actually get that raw JSON and, and we convert it into local core data models and then. In some places, we're just using fetch results controllers and things like that to actually fetch it uh, and display it into the UI. Yeah, and that's something we're, we're kind of doing a fair bit of work on at the moment um, with some upcoming features. So we're playing around with the, the way that that works. But we certainly, at the moment, we render it into local objects and we don't we don't keep the raw JSON at all. Depending on how the caching is set up, it's likely to exist in the cache directory on the disk somewhere, but we don't look at that directly at any stage. Certainly the way that, that that information is parsed is one of the things that influenced the decision to go for absolute URLs rather than um, just relative to the server because the place where you're actually parsing the JSON and using it and following the links is often not the same place that you're actually just doing the raw network call. So if you have a server relative URL just slash users slash something, you really need to know what server that response came from to be able to stitch together the URL to know where it is if you want to do an absolute request. And so... You know, that means that wherever you parse those JSON responses, whichever uh, object does that, you have to make sure you always pass in the base URL that, that the response came from so you know how to stitch together relative URLs. And when we started doing that, that was one of the points where we just said, no, let's just make everything absolute URLs, keep it simple on the client. We'll just follow the links directly. With the migration issue that you mentioned, is there anything to stop you? Since all this stuff is kind of transient data that you could be pulling down from an API, is there anything to stop you just nuking the DB each time you need to migrate? Rather than migrating, just like clear it out and just pull it all down next time you hit the API? That's certainly a valid approach. Uh, we've only been using Core Data in the application since we moved to this new API in the last year. And so far, we haven't had any really hairy migrations where we thought we need to throw away all of the data. In the previous evolution of the app, it was 
just local objects that were serialized in a, in a different format. And in that case, often when, when we detect this migrating from a, an old version, we just blew away the data and, and refreshed the search and did that again. So we haven't had to do it recently, but it's certainly a valid approach. There are question marks about if you throw away the data and try and refresh it when someone's upgrading, if that request fails, what do you tell the user? Or do you just show them an app with no data and tell them to start again? Hmm. So it's not a great user experience, but it, if it makes the developer's life easy enough in, in some cases, then maybe that's the, the correct decision if, it, if it's not something you do regularly. I've got the next trend in client-side development. Micro DB architectures. Just blow them away. We don't need them anymore. No yeah, migrations. Right. So I've got one last question that's been kind of rolling around in my in my mind while we've been talking about all this stuff with microservices is you said near the beginning of the episode that the trade-off with kind of small services versus monolith is, well, one of the trade-offs is with small services, there's a lot of infrastructure and there's a lot of kind of moving parts because obviously you've got more than one piece. Has that been painful for the like a mobile developer who doesn't really care about all of this moving parts, they just want an API to hit? Has that caused kind of pain or is, and is there, are there tricks that you've discovered for making kind of the life of a mobile dev easier when they're in this world of lots of moving parts? There certainly is some pain to it and something that we've been playing around with is, is we like the idea of these services is we have some technical freedom within each one. So some of the older ones are in kind of old school Java. Some of them, are, a lot of the newer ones are in Scala and a lot of uh, Ruby on the back end as well. So uh, even yesterday, I was, I was trying to make some changes to make a couple of APIs consistent with each other to make life easier for the client. I ended up with, I think, two Java applications, like a JavaScript web app, and two Scala applications all running locally uh, on my machine, and then writing the Objective-C to consume it at the same time. And that's a big load on, on your brain, and they're all using different build tools, different languages, different IDEs that, that, that can get pretty tricky and not everyone likes to do that and likes to work with that many languages all the time. So that's something we, we need to be conscious of. One thing we're playing around with in that is, is you know, using virtualization to make that easier. So whether you're using Vagrant or Docker or something like that to make spinning up local dev environments really easy because installing some old version of Nokagiri on a Mac when none of your compilers match can be a real pain. So having all that stuff automated for you certainly makes life a lot easier. But that, that is a trade-off at the moment, and, and what we're trying to get to the point, so at least from the outside, APIs have certain conventions and consistency in the data formats and the way they're deployed and monitored, but on the inside, how they're written, what language, there's still kind of complete freedom in that, so the teams can choose whether they want to use Scala or Ruby or, or they want to do all the new stuff in Clojure or, or something like that to let them have that freedom. It does mean that you, you start, you need to have a team of developers that are, are fairly comfortable picking up new languages or at least interested in, in working with other languages when they get the chance. But I guess part of the reason I asked was because we're going through actually a fairly similar thing at, at my current client of dealing with the complexity of all the moving parts and different languages and, yeah, trying to get uh, something in Scala to compile with a version of Scala and a version of SVT and blah, blah, blah. And I, I think we're, it sounds like we're kind of going down a similar path. We've been looking at, well, we've started using Docker to just kind of containerize each service and then have a little tool that will stand up kind of a, we have our CI pipeline builds containers for each different service kind of quite early on in the, in the pipeline. And then if you're a dev working on service X that depends on some other services, then you just kind of pull down containers that contain all those other services and then fire them up with this little tool and, and then you don't really have to care whether they're written in Scala or Ruby or 
uh, whether they're using Scala 2.10 or Scala 2.9 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, yeah, we're we're doing a similar thing, and it, there is a load to that. But I think hopefully that's part of that trade-off with then being able to write these services in in a language that's fit for that purpose, and and that the team that's primarily working on that service really likes to work in. So whether Scala is the right technical choice or Ruby is the right technical choice or any others for an API is one consideration from a technical point of view, but also just what the team... More and more, I feel like teams are productive working on things that they enjoy working on, uh, regardless of the technical considerations. So maybe if your team really wants to use Scala all the time at work, maybe they'll be more productive writing one of these services in Scala, not because it's a better language or better technology, but just because they enjoy it. I think that's one of the one of the nice things about microservices is you can start to accommodate different people's technical interests at the same time as delivering business outcomes. I wonder if anyone started writing a Swift-based web framework yet. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they have. I'm a little bit behind in Swift at the moment. There's a talk tomorrow night, a local YAR conference. So it will have already happened by the time this episode comes out, but that's going to be my first look at Swift in probably th- you know three weeks. So I'm a little bit behind on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of hilarious that uh, you know, not having looked at it for three weeks is behind the times. It's changing really fast. Every beta that comes out, they make breaking changes, which is really great. I'm glad they're willing to evolve and, and make decisions and not, not try and make everything backwards compatible at this stage. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad they're being aggressive about it. I agree. They're evolving swiftly. It <laughs> can be a new blog, a new Twitter account. <laughs> mm-hmm. I really want to make a tool for, like, I don't know, like a little DSL for building... UI table views that's going to be called Table Swift. And it's going to be spelt T A Y B L E. And it's going to be awesome. I'm not sure if that's an American cultural reference that no one else I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Not not that I have any culture, but. Taylor Swift, you guys. Oh. Oh. (laughs) Okay, maybe not. (laughs) There we go. Maybe when it's written down, everyone will find it hilarious. I think I'm old enough yet to explain pop culture references. So. <laughs> I have no idea who Taylor Swift is. Yeah, I think we all aged out of that demographic. Yeah. <laughs> no longer cool. All right, should we get to some picks? Let's pick. All right. Jane, do you want to start us with picks? So I will start with the picks. So I started listening to this album a couple weeks ago by a band called Trampled by Turtles, and they've been around for quite a while. They're kind of a local Duluth band. And they've been doing fairly well, but they were on Letterman a couple years ago and kind of blew up. And they've been they've been making records for about 10 years. The new album is really fantastic. It's more of a melancholy take on what they were, they've been doing. They always tried to kind of capture their live high-energy thing on disc and with mixed results. But this is more laid back. It's produced by Alan Sparhawk of Low, also of Duluth. But it's a great album, I think. Dave Stevenette's a really strong songwriter, and the music is... It's one of the few bands that sounds familiar and fresh at the same time, the first time you hear it. So check out Trample by Turtles, the new album, Wild Animals. That's my pick. Cool. Alondo, what are your picks? Okay, uh, my first pick is a book, and it's actually influenced by last week's episode. I picked up the Clean Code book from Robert Martin, the handbook for Agile Software Craftsmanship. I was so taken by the subject matter and wanted to uh, to delve in a bit deeper. And my second pick was actually influenced by, I started rewatching the Matrix movies again, and I'm trying to see if I'm going to make it through the third one, because the first time I saw it, I almost walked out of the theater. But uh, there was a little site that I, I found hilarious uh, called Hacker Typer, just sort of like when you see in movies, uh, everyone's typing, and they're, they're typing furiously, and you're seeing all this information show up on the screen. So it's a, it's a fun little diversion. And those were my picks. Cool. Pete, what are your picks? 
I like Hacker Typer. I think that's the one I've used in the past. We had a lot of fun with that at the pairing station once. Is there an Objective-C version? (laughs) I think it has, like, a bunch of drop-downs. You can choose, like, what stuff it produces. Or you can even cut and paste just random text in there and then just, you you know, wail on the keyboard and stuff comes out the other end. Anyway, maybe that's... I think that's the same thing. Anyway, I have four picks. So I'm going to pick Hal, which I don't know if we actually talked about specifically but i know that Stu is using it at his day job i've been using it at my day job it's a it's a nice lightweight kind of way to to specify a hypermedia api using json and you know it's got some quirks like all of these things do but it's worked out pretty well for us a couple of things that Stu touched on that i'd recommend for folks who are maybe not super into the back end world uh, vagrant is a really good tool for making kind of standing up a server in an automated way so that you don't have to tell everyone the five steps involved in, you know, getting the new service started or the 20 steps or the two-page wiki document or whatever. You just define how to stand up a virtual machine in code and then just tell someone, check out this code and run Vagrant and it will stand up a VM. Docker is a more sophisticated version of that kind of-ish, or at least it's you can use it that way as a way to kind of package up not just your application, but your application plus all of its dependencies in a kind of a container that you can then run run in a in a host environment. So those two are really cool tools, Vagrant and Docker. And then my last pick is actually a JavaScript Jabber episode with that I listened to recently. I actually don't know how recently it was recorded, but it's the one with uh, Steve Klabnik talking about hypermedia and stuff like that. So if you're interested in all of this discussion of hypermedia. He's a super smart guy, and it was just a really interesting conversation. Obviously, it's a bunch of JavaScript developers rather than a bunch of iOS developers, but, you know, it's all the same. So, yeah, JavaScript Jabber episode something. I'll figure it out, and I'll put it in the show notes. It's episode 104. It was a couple months ago. Thank you, sir. All right. I've got a couple of picks. One of my picks is also a Steve Klabnik special. It's designinghypermediaapis.com, and it's actually an ebook. If I can uh, spell it right when I type it in. But uh, yeah, it, it's pretty good and uh, explains in depth what hypermedia APIs are and how you want to structure them and things like that. They've also been working on a JSON API format. And I'm trying to remember. Yeah, here yeah, it is. It's kind of like an alternative to, yeah. to HAL, or, HAL or Siren or one of those guys. Yeah, and he, he talks about that in that episode that Pete mentioned. And it's pretty interesting as well. And then finally... I've lately moved my uh, development situation over to my laptop. It's just nice because then I can just pick up my laptop and go somewhere. It seems like once or twice a week I'm at a Starbucks or another restaurant that has Wi-Fi just to get out of the house and kind of change my situation a little bit. The other thing is is I've got this standing desk that I've put up, and I have one of those standing desks where you move your laptop over to the standing desk to stand up. That's how it adjusts. So anyway, I wanted something where I could just, you know, plug stuff in and go. And so I've tried out two different docking stations for my MacBook Pro. And so I'm going to put links to both of them in the show notes. One of them is this little silver thing. It says it has two Thunderbolt ports on it. What they don't tell you is that you need one of those Thunderbolt ports in order to hook it to your laptop. The other one looked like it had a Thunderbolt port on the front and then two on the back. And it turned out the one on the front was actually a USB 3 plug. But it has an HDMI plug on it, connector, whatever you want to call it, uh, HDMI output. There we go. Now I sound smart. So I'm liking that one a little bit better because I only have to plug one thing into my laptop to get everything to come up right. And 
Yeah, so I just set the arrangement on my laptop, and it seems to remember it when I plug one in or the other. So um, that's pretty nice. So I'll put links to those in the show notes as well. They weren't really cheap, but it's more convenient, and I feel like I can work standing up for part of the day and not have to, you know, change gears too much. I just, you know, unplug two plugs from sitting down and plug one in standing up. Yeah, so those are my picks. Stu, what are your picks? I should mention the packed library for consumer-driven contracts. I think we've got links to it from earlier in the show. It's not the only way to do consumer-driven contracts, but it's it's a way to do contract testing for APIs, which I quite like. I'd like to mention the Yao Connected conference, which is a, a mobile conference happening in, in Melbourne in September. So if, if there are any listeners that are on this side of the world, September 8 and 9, I think Ben Sherman, who, who has been on the show here, I'm pretty sure, is coming over and speaking at that conference. And that's iOS, Android, and Internet of Things, and fun little devices and things like that. That should be a, a great local conference. And I thought the tips were just meant to be about, about beer based on previous episodes. <laughs> um, so I've got, a, I've got an alcohol-related tip. So having grown up in Australia, I thought the only red wine was Shiraz or Syrah. And the last year I've discovered Cabernet and the Margaret River region over near Perth in Western Australia makes amazing Cabernet. And it's not cheap, but it's not super expensive. You know, 30 to $50 you'll get some fantastic wine. So I just want to put in a plug for, for Margaret River Cabernet and, and don't believe that all the Australian wine that we send to other parts of the world is, is all that's available. We, we only send the bad stuff overseas. There's quite a lot of good stuff available. Very nice. That's our first wine pick. So oh. high class. So one other thing. Yeah, I just love great. the yellowtail. Keep sending that stuff over. Yeah. Oh, you can have it. <laughs> so one other thing I forgot to mention is if you are in Utah and you want to learn Swift, I started a study group a few months ago, and we've been picking books that we read and work through. And the next book that we picked is the Apple Swift book, and so we're going to work through it one chapter or section at a time. It's probably going to take us several months to get through it, but effectively it's kind of a self-study learn iOS slash Swift. So if you're interested in that and you can make it to Lehigh, Utah, then uh, check it out. And if you're interested in having it done as kind of a Google Hangout or something like that. I'm not sure how well it will work sitting in a Starbucks, but I'm willing to give it a try. So if, if you want that done, then send me an email, chuck at devchat.tv. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum. 